What do you explain, and when do you explain it? My name's Jonathan, and this is the Snakescast, the podcast for people who don't know as much about board games as they'd like to know. This week we'll finish our series on how to teach games with a closer look at what to teach and what not to teach. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm going to talk a little bit now about how to get things in the right order so as to explain a complicated game in a way that's going to be easy to understand. And the example I'm going to use is The Settlers of Catan. That's a game with a ton of rules. Believe me, it's a lot harder to teach than you might think, especially if you're used to playing it a lot and think of it as being an easy, introductory sort of game. Teach it to somebody who's never played anything more complicated Monopoly than the Monopoly sometime, and you'll find out in a hurry just how hard it can be. So what are you going to have to cover to get this done? What are the main central pillars of a explanation of Settlers of Catan? Well, there's the background story, I suppose. It's kind of window dressing, but it can provide a little bit of useful information. There's the bit about how you roll dice to get resources, how you trade them to make combinations, cash them in, get points, build things this way, build things that way, score points through development cards, score points by having cities and settlements, score points for the longest road and the largest army, uh, first player to get to 10 points wins, uh, there's trading with the bank, there's trading with the other players, there's the turn structure where you roll and then you trade and then you build... There's a lot to cover, and we haven't even gotten to the bit about the robber yet. And if you just try to do all of that in a sort of an undifferentiated info dump, it's going to have a hard time sinking in. So you have to choose a few key things to focus on as you're scaffolding and then hang the rest inside that scaffold. Here's what I like to use as that scaffolding teaching settlers. I do like to begin with that super quick explanation of what the deal is with this island. It's a island has just been discovered. You're all settler companies. You're arriving. You're trying to become the most powerful company. You do this by scoring points. And here's the first pillar. Settlers is about scoring points. And the first player to get to 10 points is going to win. And you don't want to linger too long on this because there's a fair number of ways to score points. A couple of the big ones you can cover, though. These little settlements, those are worth one point each. These cities, they're worth two each. Don't bother explaining the rest. Just say, oh, there's a couple other ways to score. We'll talk about those later. The first player to get to 10 points wins. Boom, you have your first pillar. Build things to score points. First player to get 10 points is your winner. Second thing, second pillar is going to relate with how are you going to build these things? That's the big question you have to answer next. How do you build these things? And you can hold up one of the building cards and say to build these things, you're going to need resources in different combinations. You want to build a road, one of these little stick things here, that'll cost you one clay and one lumber. You want to upgrade one of your settlements to a city, that's two grain and three ore. There's pillar number two. To build things and score these points, you need to collect resources. So, so far we've got two things. We need to collect stuff, and we turn those stuff into things which are worth points. And then here comes the third pillar. Problem is, most of the time, you're going to have too much of one thing and not enough of something else, so if you want to get anywhere, you have to trade with the other players. And boom, 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 we have our tripod. Score points by building stuff with resources, which you get the right combinations of by trading with other people. Already, we have our scaffold in place. Those are the three main pillars of your explanation for Settlers of Catan. We haven't talked about how the robber works. We haven't talked about how trading with the bank works. We haven't talked about the largest, the largest army or the longest road. But we've covered all the things that they're going to need to have those other things make sense in context. So once you've got that scaffolding in place, then you can start getting into details. You can begin with the turn structure. This is what you do on your turn. First, you're going to roll some dice and pass out some resources. You can actually go into a little bit of detail about that now because people have a sense of why they're going to want certain resources. They don't know the details, but they don't have to, not just yet. 
Then you get to the part about trading, and they already know why trading is good. They've got too much of one thing and not enough of something else. You can explain how you can trade freeform with the other players, but only with the person whose turn it is. It's a good time to mention that. And because of the fact that they've got enough of a sense of the overall picture, they won't have a hard time remembering that when it's your turn, you're the one people are going to be trading with. You mention how you trade with the bank, 3 to 1, 4 to 1, the 2 to 1 ports. And by that point, you're ready to move on to part three, which is building. Now, here is going to be the longest and most detailed part of your explanation so far, because you actually have to make sure they know how and where they can build roads, settlements, city upgrades, and development cards. Development cards of those are the most difficult part of that sub part. Even so, it's not that much, because once again, they've been provided with the basic information. They know where to go from there. This is, this is all something they can hang within that scaffolding. And then at the end of your turn, you pass your dice to the player on your left, and already, the players know the basic structure of the game and how to take a turn. So now your players are just about ready to start. You still haven't explained the robber yet, but explaining the robber can lead easily into how to play knight cards, and knights can lead to the largest army, and the largest army can lead to the longest road, and by that point, you're just about done. So why wasn't the robber one of the pillars of your explanation? Because you don't have to understand the robber to understand the rest of the game, but you do have to understand the rest of the game to understand the robber. The pillars are those things that need to be supported in and of themselves. Those are the things you need to explain first. That's what's going to support the rest of your explanation. I'll give you another example, 1812, the invasion of Canada. I'll always bring that game to the table with the understanding that people realize that it is a team game. It's three against two, you're fighting against each other and working together with your teammates to defeat your opponent. That's pillar number one. Pillar number two, you have to take over territory on the opposite side of the border that has little stars in it. Whenever you take over it's a space that's not on your side of the board, you put a little control marker on it and that says, okay, that's a point. When the game ends, whichever team has the most points wins. I don't actually explain how the game ends until much later because that's not one of the pillars of the game. And then... The third pillar in this case is actually the turn sequence, which you do on your turn. You put some more armies on the board, you play a movement card that lets you move some of your troops and you can bring your teammates with you, and then you roll dice to fight and see who takes over. Then you fill up the rest of your hand, and that's it. Once people have that scaffolding in place, everything else makes sense. In a Teach of Settlers, the first thing I like to do after the scaffolding is in place is teach how you get roll dice and get resources. That's fun. Rolling dice and getting stuff? Who doesn't like that? The next thing after that is how you trade. Also fun. And then the next thing after that, how you build stuff. Bit more complicated, in some ways a bit less glamorous, but the, by that point they're primed for the rest of it because it's part of that structure that they've already been told how it works. 1812, same kind of idea. The most fun part I like to teach first, and that is how you roll dice and fight each other. I'll just grab a few cubes from all colors and say, okay, we're going to do a pretend battle over here. And I get players on both sides rolling dice and rooting for their teammates and sometimes having a bizarre blowout when luck swings one way or another. It's like, okay, good. That's a good lesson for you to learn. Next, it's how to play movement cards and move your troops. Mentioning, of course, how you can move yourself and your teammates with you. Here we start to get into the more complicated stuff, how to play the naval movement cards. A little bit trickier, but you can add a little bit of spice to it by explaining how the canoe cards are different from the fishing boats or different from the warships, and everybody has their own unique stuff. After that, how you play the special event cards. Read what they say and do them and then throw them away. Dead simple. I also like to mention that each player is going to have their own unique special stuff. You don't have to mention that, but it gives people something to look forward to, having a chance to play stuff that is uniquely theirs and do stuff that only they can do. 
By that point, there's not a lot left to explain. You have to cover how the turn sequence works, how you reach into the bag and find out which player is going to go next, and you're also going to have to explain the question of how the game comes to an end with the signing of the Treaty of Ghent. By this point, though, they're sufficiently invested in it. They have a sufficient understanding of how things are put together that this final piece slots in quite nicely and quite easily. And you don't have to explain the strategy of how it is that you're going to want to try and bring the game to a screeching halt when you're winning and try and drag it out desperately when you're behind. Because that's something they're going to figure out on their own. And that brings me to what is, in some ways, the hardest question when you're putting together a Teach for a Game, and that is, what do you include and what do you leave out? So you might ask, why would you leave anything out? I mean, you want the explanation to be thorough, right? Well, there are reasons, or at least there can be reasons, why less is more. I mean, for example, a short explanation is less intimidating than a long one, and for a lot of players that can make a big difference to a game's accessibility. If you spend less time explaining a game, then theoretically you can spend more time playing it. And a lot of people, they want, they're biting at the bit to start. They're excited. They want to start playing. They don't want to listen to you ramble on about rules and stuff. And that's understandable. The thing is that there are a number of reasons why you might want to make sure that you cover all the rules and sometimes reason why reasons why you won't. Obviously, the group that you're playing with is one big part of it. Some groups are happy to just sort of stumble through and figure things out as they go. Others will be suspicious of you, especially if there's a move that happens later on in the game that helps you and you're like, oh, did I, did I mention that I can do this? That sometimes doesn't go over very well, especially if you have more serious-minded players. More playful sorts can usually overlook that sort of thing. But beyond that, think about what you're doing when you're explaining the rules to a game. You're Ideally, not just trying to get across a series of rules in the most efficient and practical sort of way. I mean, if you're teaching somebody how to drive a car, then yes, you want to make sure they get all the information. You want to make sure they get it thoroughly and correctly. You want to make sure they get everything right because people will die if you get it wrong. On the other hand, when you're teaching a game, well, a game's supposed to be enjoyable and if you're teaching it in, as something that's very serious, where it's life and death stakes, you have to make sure they get it absolutely right. That's not really what teaching a game is for, for the most part. What you're doing is you're empowering your friends to be able to have fun, to play within the system. And by play, I don't just mean follow the rules. I mean being able to be playful within this little imaginary world that you're creating together. And in order to be playful within that system, you have to have at least some understanding of how the system works. Not only do you have to know what the rules are, you also kind of have to get a sense of what you're going to want to do with those rules. Otherwise, you're just sort of following steps and going through the motions. This leads to one of the things which I most commonly leave out when I'm explaining a game at Snakes and Lattes, and that is strategy. Explaining the rules is important because that way people know what they can and can't do. But explaining strategy, that's answering questions of why they would do a certain thing and why they wouldn't. Usually, when somebody asks me a question relating to strategy and I'm teaching a game at the cafe, I'll just sort of give them an evil-looking, toothy grin and just stay, silent, just stay silent for a little while, and they'll sort of have an uncomfortable sort of a chuckle, and the other players will usually realize, aha, they're not going to tell you. You have to figure that out on your own. And I'll try to defuse, defuse the situation a little bit at that point, saying something like, a big part of the fun 
in games is making mistakes, messing up, and sort of trial and error, learning what works and what doesn't. And that process of falling down and getting back up again is a big part of the fun because you can mess up in games and make all kinds of terrible, stupid mistakes, and it's still okay. In real life, if you're driving a car and you make a terrible, stupid mistake, somebody's going to die. So this is the fun of it. At least it's part of the fun of it. Being able to try things to be playful and not have to worry about the consequences. And I don't want to steal that from people when I'm teaching a game. I want to make sure they get the chance to be innocent, in a sense. To try things out, not knowing whether they're going to succeed or fail, and just let the chips fall where they may. And you want them to be able to be surprised by stuff that's going to happen. You don't want them to have to plan everything out straight from the beginning before they've ever had the chance to play their first game. Then again, sometimes explaining some of the strategy can be a really big help because it can give people a sense of how they're going to begin, how they're going to get started. Sometimes starting out just being completely lost is not the most fun thing. One of the things I like to do teaching Settlers of Catan is talk about how trading has a tendency to make people win. I'll uh, tell the story about, okay, suppose we've got a four-player game of Settlers, right? And I'm one of the players, and I make a trade with you, and I give you some resources, you give me some resources, and as a result of what you have, you can build stuff that's worth two points, and as a result of what I get out of the trade, I can build stuff that's worth one point. So that's a bad trade for me, right? So then I make a similar trade with you and then make another similar trade with you. I must be a complete fool, right? I've made three bad trades, but here's the thing. How many points do we all have now because of these trades? You've got two, you've got two, you've got two. Oh, I've got three. Who's the fool now? And people's eyes tend to light up when they realize that. They they realize, okay, so sometimes it's a good idea to make trades that are just as good for somebody else as they are for me. Uh, When I'm explaining Corridor, I'll do a little demo where I show how blocking the path behind me can stop you from blocking the path in front of me. I describe this as the outermost layer of the onion that is the strategy in this game. Just to sort of give them a taste of what's in there, a sense that, yeah, there is something beyond the strict rules of the game that they can explore and discover and... and and turn to their advantage in all these different ways. And finding that balance between giving enough information for people to start making plans of their own, start being able to really play with what's in there versus not spending so long explaining stuff that it takes forever to get to the point where they can actually have fun, obviously not an easy thing to do. Part of that is experience. Part of that is knowing who you're teaching the game to. Big part of it is just knowing the game as well as possible to begin with. Nothing for me is harder than having to teach a game that I've never played before because I don't know what that experience is like from the inside. I don't really know what aspects to convey. You do, you sort of have to stumble through and do the best we can with what you've got. It's a bit of a punchline around here that whenever a question comes up as to what's the best game or the best way to do something, the answer always turns out to be, it depends on the situation. It depends on who you're playing with. It depends on your skills. On which you, It always depends on stuff. And I wish I could be more helpful when it comes to that. But ultimately, what you're going to have to do is listen, pay attention, learn from your own mistakes in teaching and do everything you can to always keep improving. You're never going to get to be perfect at it. At least not unless you're a lot better at it than I am. All right, that's it for this week. If you have any questions about teaching games, tweet them over to me at snakescast. 
Teaching games might just be the hardest, most important, and most thankless task when it comes to bringing more people into this little hobby of ours. I'll always be glad to help you out in any way I can. Meanwhile, if you couldn't make it out to the premiere of Snakes and Lattes The Show last week, the good news is you can now watch the first two episodes online, right now at snakesandlattes.com. And the rest of the episodes will be coming out weekly. I had a lot of fun working on the show, and I hope you'll enjoy it too. The Snakes cast is produced by P.T. Douglas, music is provided by Ben Sound. The opinions expressed on the show belong to the people in it and not the company behind it. Next week, brand new co-hosts. See you then, folks. Game on. Game on.